only just begun, as the carpenters used to sing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It's powerful. The words of the Lord Jesus are everything we need to know you, to love you, to serve you as you want us to. So we ask for your help again in an area where sometimes we stumble because this world is full of wrongs and the need to forgive is so important. We thank you in Christ's name, amen. Okay, Matthew chapter 18, we're um, right in it. There's three areas that Jesus is dealing with in this particular chapter that we're on. Three things he wants to see in us. Well, even more than that, he, he must see in us. These three things are imperatives uh, for a Christian. And we've talked about the first two. The, the first one was lowliness or, or humility, the scramble for the bottom, uh, the servant's heart, the desire to lift others up rather than climb on top of them. In verse 3, Jesus said that if one does not humble himself as a child, he cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven. There's no room for pride there, no room for superiority. The second thing we talked about was moral integrity, holiness, um, the hatred of sin. Jesus says to regard, well, I mean, I'm adding this idea of cancer in it, but he says to think of it as something that has to be cut away, like the way we think of cancer, something to be dealt with severely, sin in our life. Verses 8 and 9 there, he talks about that, cutting off, casting from you. Um, sin has to be dealt with seriously in our own lives, and also, then, as we saw last week, in the community of the church as well, the community of the redeemed. We have to deal with sin in our midst as well. So the, the discipline process described in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, which we talked about previously, is a, an, an incredible link between heaven and earth. I mean, the authority to bind and loose that he gives to the church, granted to imperfect men to restrain sin amongst God's people is a great challenge, and it has to, that's why humility has to come first. That's why the chapter starts with that. You can't deal with sin and other people unless... Um, you've dealt with it in yourself and you have a humble heart. So righteousness as a mark of God's people is paramount. It's really important. Lowliness and holiness work together in a kind of a perfect harmony because only the humble can care enough and care properly for the lost, the lost sinner, to, the, the one that needs restoration, to seek them out, to win them back. Humility in our hearts and a hatred of sin, those, those are the hallmarks of the Christian's personal life and those are the hallmarks of the church community life. So church is really what Jesus is talking about there in verses 15 through 20. In fact, the use of the word church here is only, there's only two places in the gospels, all four gospels, where the word church appears. One of them is here. Remember where the other one was? Chapter 16, we were already there. Remember Peter's great confession? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. That was the first use of church in the Bible. And here's the second use. And then you won't find it again until you get into the pastoral letters because the church hasn't been created yet. Jesus is preparing the disciples to create it. So um, amazing things are going on here. So Matthew 18 is a really powerful and very clear description from Jesus' own mouth of how things are supposed to be in the church. It's to be a place of humble service, of brotherly admonition and accountability, uh, 
And here's the third thing, forgiveness. Lowliness, holiness, forgiveness. Those are the three things that this chapter deals with. There's nothing in the world, literally nothing in the world, like Jesus' doctrine of forgiveness. It's very unique. It's beyond the philosophy of men. And to live it, to live what he says is a supernatural sign of the life of God in us by the Holy Spirit. The subject of forgiveness is, is actually brought up by our, our friend Peter in the text. Um, he's been listening to what Jesus has been saying and uh, all the th- that he's been sharing with them. He, he believes he's getting an understanding of humility and service and seeking out the lost sheep and he's beginning to grasp the purpose and the attitude that has to accompany correction, brotherly admonition or what you might call church discipline. He understands that Jesus is teaching forgiveness for anyone who repents when their sin is pointed out to them. That's, um, that's how that section ends there in verse 25. I'm sorry, not 25. Where am I? I got lost. Oh, good. Oh, well, right there in verse 15. I'm sorry, 15. One five. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So there's forgiveness right away to be provided. If somebody sins against you, you forgive them. There's restoration, immediate restoration when somebody repents. That's the idea there. So Peter's grasping all of this, and then he asks this question in verse 21. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, I know it's popular to think that Peter's being kind of uh, low here. Like, like that's not very many times. That's a lot of times. Think about it. If somebody sins against you seven times, where are you with them? Most of us would be like, I'm not having anything to do with you. After two, maybe three, right? So he's actually, he's really trying to capture the spirit of what Jesus is saying here. He's not being small-minded. He, he's trying to grasp the commandments and put them in, into the real world. Like, how am I going to live this kind of thing? And so seven times is not stingy. I think from the perspective of a typical human being, it's pretty gracious seven times. Peter's going beyond in fact, the, the accepted doctrine taught by the rabbis. What we know about Judaism in the early centuries, they put the number at three. That's what they were taught. So Peter is a Jew growing up in that culture. The rabbis would have taught him, you should forgive people three times. Rabbi Jose ben Judah said, if a brother sins against you once, forgive him. A second time, forgive him. A third time, forgive him. But a fourth time, do not forgive him. He actually says, don't. They've, they've pushed it too far. They've crossed the line. So it's kind of the rabbinical version of the three strikes law, but, but they didn't play baseball, so it's four strikes. The fourth strike, you're out. That's kind of where it is with all of that. So Peter, trying to, trying to grasp the concept of this humble servant shepherd that he's going to be goes way beyond the three times. He's doubling it and adding another one. So it's not stinginess on his part. He's actually being expansive up to seven times. And Jesus' answer is so astounding 
we try to pretend it's not in the Bible. I mean, when we live, when we live in situations where we are sinned against. Jesus said, I, did, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I was talking to somebody, a, a believer, who made a very confident assertion that maximum effort had been made on his part to forgive. I forgave so-and-so 10 times. I've heard all of those apologies before. I'm done. Well, what do you say when somebody says that? Except something like, well, what about the other 480 times? I mean, there's, this isn't limited. 10 times is a lot. I mean, humanly speaking, 10 times is a lot. You've really forgiven somebody if they've wronged you 10 times. I mean, that's, that's pretty good. That seems very patient and gracious and putting up with and enduring, but, you know, if you think about it, though, even at a human level, we go way beyond 10 times under certain circumstances. Like we forgive our children way more than 10 times. We forgive spouses more than 10 times for most things. <laughs> but we do. I mean, you know, my wife has probably forgiven me beyond 490 times. God forgives us thousands of times. God forgives us many thousands of times. That's, and that's the standard that Jesus uses for us because we're supposed to be God-like. Be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect, he says, right? So he's describing something that is really beyond human capability. This kind of forgiveness is a, is a, a divine quality, but it's within reach of the Christian because we have supernatural resources and we have experienced it ourselves on the side of being the sinner. And that's what the key is to this whole thing. In fact, based on Jesus' teaching here, I think we can say that one who will not forgive is missing something of great significance in their Christian walk. Because that should be normal. We should always be ready to forgive. As forgiven people, we're expected to forgive. Unlimited forgiveness is actually a benchmark of genuine Christianity. So Jesus teaches the principle and the basis for forgiveness by helping us see ourselves as forgiven people. And he does this with a parable. It's a perfectly constructed parable. It's, it's actually brilliant. And it doesn't allow you any wiggle room at all, which makes it masterful. So the implications of this story he's going to tell are profound. I mean, really profound for the Christian mind. I mean, it's a staggering death blow to human pride. I mean, you can't survive if you understand this parable and take it to heart. In fact, you'll never be able to say the words, I deserve better again. I mean, you just can't say it after you understand this. So here it goes. Matthew 18, 23. For this reason... The kingdom of heaven may be compared, so this is an analogy, right? Compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before, the, before him, 
saying, she's prostrate on the ground, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should pay all that was owed him. That's the story. Jesus says this story tells you things about the kingdom of God. You can, he says, compare what happens in that story to the reality of your relationship to Christ's kingdom. And the story has these three main features, so we're gonna walk back through the story again and figure out how it relates to the kingdom of God. So first we have the king's clemency, right? The king forgiving this guy this debt. The king is a very forgiving person. The debt of the servant is, well, Jesus just like goes crazy with it. It's staggeringly high. I mean, 10,000 talents, that's, that's a lot. Uh, that's, that's like nine million ounces of gold. That's how they calculate that out. It'd be the equivalent of that. It's hard to do it with money because money's always changing, right? But that's, that's how much gold we're talking about. I mean, it's more money than a full year's worth of taxes would have taken in in the entire kingdom of Judea. I mean, that's, it's, an, it's, a, it's like the, the gross national product, you know, of the, of the country or something. It's huge, just vast. But this is a story, so we can just call it a billion dollars. Let's say this guy owes him a billion dollars, so then you'll get the picture. The, the idea is he can't pay it back. There's no way he'll ever pay it back. So how is this like the kingdom of God? Well, who's the king in the story? That is God. In what way are men indebted to God? Well, every sin that you commit and that I commit is a debt to God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's the penalty. We throw people in prison for crimes, right? And we say, why are they in there? They're paying their Debt to society. That's what we say, right? They owe a debt to justice. They're paying their debt to society. Same idea exactly in, is what Jesus wants us to grasp from this. So the penalty is what we owe. A fine, jail, prison, death. Those are human penalties. We've broken God's laws many times. We are debtors to divine justice. Colossians um, Paul's letter of Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 actually describes sin like a, a list. Would you like to see a list of your sins? What font size would you like to use? Just so it's manageable, right? But it actually describes it as a certificate of debt. 
And he says that certificate of debt has been nailed to the cross, which means that Jesus paid the whole thing for all those sins, which is the greatest news in the world. I mean, I, I wonder how many, I really do wonder, I'm just curious, how, how many sins I've committed in my almost 60 years. I mean, that's a lot of sin. And it would make a lot of paper. How often have I offended the king of heaven? How often have I squandered his resources? How often have I broken his laws or ignored his commands? How many times have I done that? I, I can't even imagine. I hope I don't ever really find out. How much devastation have I contributed to the world? His perfect world, his good world that he made. I know this, it would be way closer to 9 million ounces of gold than it would be to 100 denarii. Way closer. If I saw a list of them all, it would just be a mountain of debt, astronomical debt. How great is that debt? How unpayable is that debt? And the point of the story is that the debtor is me. The debtor is you. We're supposed to identify with that slave. The man throws himself on the king's mercy, verse 26. He's on the floor in a position of abject humiliation and begging, have patience with me, I will repay you everything. Right, yeah, right. You'll pay the nine million ounces of gold. And the king's response, the Lord felt compassion. Compassion is the word that's most often used in the New Testament of Jesus Christ in terms of his emotional life. God is compassionate. God told Moses he was compassionate, full of loving kindness and compassion. God's all, God, that's who God is. And he released him and forgave him the debt. So when God sees humility, he's ready to forgive. It goes right back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, the poverty-stricken. That word we talked about back then, it means totally ruined financially. I mean, having nothing, destitute. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those with nothing. This man certainly seems poor in spirit. He seems like it. He's, he's full of regret. He's promising to try to repay what he can't possibly repay. The king incredibly, amazingly forgives him just the way God forgives us. There's no way to make up for our sins. There is no way to make up for your sins. If the standard is righteousness, then all I'm doing is falling short. Even if I'm righteous 10 times and I sin one time, well, days and days and years and years and months and months, I'm shorter and shorter and getting shorter and shorter of the requirement. The, the debt is astronomically high. Satisfaction cannot be made by us except to pay the debt. And the wages of sin is death. So in the story, the debt is just forgiven. It's just forgiven. Now Jesus in this story doesn't discuss the basis of our forgiveness, which we know, since it's a debt to justice and the penalty for sin is death, somebody had to pay that debt if we're not going to die and be cast off forever from God. And that's why Jesus came into this world, to die in our place. We need somebody who is righteous, who's qualified to pay our debt. He's got to, somebody's got to take care of our debt, and Jesus does that graciously, completely, fully. So he doesn't talk about how, but he does talk about the graciousness of salvation, that this king just forgives him, flat out forgives him, no consequences. So salvation cannot be earned, it can only be received. 
So what does he do, this guy who's been forgiven? Well, the second element in the story is the forgiven servant's outrageous severity to his fellow slave. Verse 28, let's go back to that again. That slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. So the God figure has forgiven this person who represents us, if you will, goes out and how does he relate to people that have a debt to him? He chokes them. He chokes them until they give what they owe. And his fellow slave fell to the ground, the same thing he did, and pleads with him the same way he pleaded, have patience with me, I will repay you. But he was unwilling and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. Who is this guy, this unforgiving slave? I mean, who is he? He, he is an actor. That's what we know. That's what we know. He's an actor. So when he prostrated himself on the ground before the king, he was performing. He wasn't humbled by his great debt. And remember the Greek word for actor, hypocrites. That's where we get our word hypocrisy. He's a hypocrite. So he's the guy that professes to be a Christian and doesn't forgive. He faked contrition to get out of trouble, but he won't give it. There are human beings that can offend heaven, I mean, at will, repeatedly, time and time again, and claim God forgives them, but then they deny forgiveness to somebody else. There are people that do that. So look at this second slave. I mean, he, he denied forgiveness. His, and this guy's debt was 100 denarii. That's like, that's like working for three or four months for somebody. But just a day, day's wage kind of guy or day laborer kind of guy. It, it, it could have been actually paid back. He could have probably done it over a course of time. And suddenly forgiveness has limits, right? This is a, a heart that is so twisted, it, it snarls. No forgiveness for you. Off you go to debtor's prison. His action is so outrageous, not because he didn't forgive the debt, but because he was so arrogant to plead for the king's mercy and then go out immediately and have learned nothing about mercy. It's the height of hypocrisy, but it's really easy to be this way, isn't it? Because when people wrong, wrong us, we get our pride thing up. We're blind to it. We, we disconnect the unfathomable mercy we receive from God. We disconnect that from the mercy we should readily give to other people. And of course, the wicked servant could have tried the old Christian double sidestep forgiveness trick. You know the one I'm talking about, right? I forgive you, you know, but you're going to debtor's prison anyway. I forgive you in the Lord, but I hate your guts and I never want to see you again. <laughs> that kind of thing. When they say I forgive you in the Lord, just, just pay attention because the next thing coming might be really harsh. So the question is, how did the king forgive? Unconditionally or conditionally? He forgave unconditionally. I mean, he wiped out the debt. Hey, you're free, bud. It's okay. I'll take care of it. Freely. Not only the person, the debt was forgiven. He not only didn't send him to prison, he let the debt go. Taken care of. Don't worry about it. You're free. 
No consequences, no repayment schedule, no beatings, no prison. I would have had him beaten and then maybe let him go. <laughs> no exile. I actually do believe in consequences. Sin has consequences. There are natural consequences when you sin. Things might not work out after you've done some bad things. There are legal consequences before the state. There are parental consequences. Sometimes you can't just forgive a child and never discipline them for anything or have consequences for their behavior. So that's appropriate. But if my child is evil and repents and I forgive them, I, I might have a parental duty to impose certain consequences for that. But I don't put conditions on my love and I don't put conditions on my acceptance or the reality of that forgiveness in terms of my heart. It's clean. They don't cease to be children, my children, right? So think of the prodigal son story in Luke 15. The, the father sees the son really far off starting to come back home after his profligate, wasteful life. And he just runs out there to get him. Grabs him immediately before he can say a word and starts kissing him and welcomes him home. That's how God is with forgiveness. But what if he kept leaving and coming back and leaving and coming back and struggling and trying and failing? Should dad just give up? Well, does God just give up on us? Is that how he is with us? I was really amazed, you know, Brooke, where's Brooke? He's running around some, there he is. He, he loaned me a book about this Navy SEAL. What was his name? Adam, I can't remember his name. I, uh, but anyway, Adam something. But anyway, uh, wonderful story, powerful testimony. Um, this guy was a drug addict who became a Navy SEAL. I mean, that should be automatically like you can never even be in the military. I mean, a serious drug addict. But God was working in his life in an amazing way. His, his, he was so destructive for his parents and so caused so much pain to his parents. They became Christians trying to, as they were trying to sort out what to, how to handle him. And then he met this Christian girl and then he eventually became a Christian and he married her and then God worked out these amazing things. This guy was Superman and he became um, physically and just mentally. And he became this Navy SEAL and... Uh, but he still had drug problems. I mean, they kept coming, you know, the call, the call, this problem. And his wife went through hell. I mean, she had to, you know, go find him and restore him. And it was painful. The parents, year after year, all this stuff. And it was hard. I mean, they were deeply pained and grieved. And the level of forgiveness they kept on, I mean, that's a 490-plus situation. It, just, it was just extremely difficult. This guy was amazing, though, and he did come around, and he did get his life straightened out in very profound ways, but sometimes he slipped, even as a Navy SEAL. He ended up being killed in Afghanistan. But um, what an incredible story, an amazing story of God's grace through people and forgiveness. Some circumstances really do start to add up to 490. I mean, they really do uh, in life. There are kinds of situations where there's way more than three and more than 10 that's not to say forgiveness means people shouldn't be held accountable for the crimes they commit. If someone burns down my house, if he repents, I forgive him. I think of those, those um, brothers and sisters in that church in uh, uh, the South that was, you know, that young man came in and sat down with them and they loved on him and he was some kind of Nazi weirdo and he, he just shot them all. And you remember that? And what happened when he was arraigned at court? Do you remember? person after person, family member after family member coming up and saying, I forgive you. I for this is right after they lost family. 
to this killer, cold-hearted killer. I forgive you. I forgive you. In fact, they're making a documentary film about those people that forgave him. That's going to be the center of the story. I'm not sure what the, when that's coming out, but um, amazing levels of forgiveness. We're called upon to forgive, to receive, to accept, based on God's forgiveness of us. His forgiveness is so complete that we can't deny forgiveness to other people. That's why we know there's no purgatory because God's forgiveness is complete. When you die, you're gonna be with him. There's no place to burn for you as a Christian. The word wrath doesn't apply to the believer in Christ. He's, he has turned aside God's wrath. That's what it means that he's a propitiation for our sins. He turns away God's wrath. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 tells us, right? Because that's what God's forgiveness is like. So we read it earlier in the service, uh, Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. And he doesn't just say forgiving each other, he explains how, right? Just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Which is an infinite amount of forgiveness. Boundless. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we actually are asking God to forgive us our sins, our trespasses as we have forgiven those who trespassed against us, right? We're actually asking him, oh, that's okay. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, that's gotta be the heart of that. We're actually asking God to forgive us on the basis of him forgiving for on our forgiveness towards others. Forgive me like I forgive other people. Well, can you pray that? People rattle that off. I don't think they think about it. You forgive me the way I forgive other people. Wow. It melts all pride to realize the enormity of our debt forgiven by Christ. And that takes away anything that should keep us from withholding forgiveness to other people. How can any honest sinner withhold mercy from another sinner? Really? Well, the third part of the story, Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. I mean, that's painful to see how brutal this guy was to their fellow slave. And they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said, what does the king say about the slave? What? What verbal description does he use? Wicked, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? It should be proportionate. So just as God forgives us in the same way, we should grant mercy to other people. So the king now is angry. Verse 34, his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So he's cast into debtor's prison until he pays up the nine million ounces of gold. How much, how much gold do you think you can earn while you're in debtor's prison? I never did understand debtor's prison. <laughs> it's like, how actually do you make the money to pay somebody back? But... Um, that's what they used to do. They did it in England too in the old days. But you know, that's not a good place to be. And you know, the torturers, they don't pay you to torture you. 
You don't get money for that. They do it for fun. They get paid by somebody else. So you don't make money being tortured. So what does this all mean? Verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. The same? How can God revoke this believer's forgiveness? He doesn't do that. He doesn't revoke forgiveness. This man has demonstrated that he's not a believer. He's the actor. He's the hypocrite. He, he was insincere in his pleading for mercy. He doesn't appreciate mercy. He probably walked out of there after his act on the floor with a smile on his face. A gr- <laughs> I got out of that one, man. He's one of those kind of people. So he's not a true servant of the king at all. These Matthew 18 things, humility, fighting against our own sin, fighting sin in the church, forgiveness, those are the marks of genuine faith. That's the natural fruit of faith in Christ. And we have to be concerned about those who reject these central tenets of the genuine faith there because Jesus, he's the one in every one of these three major points, he brings up exclusion or hell. He even uses that word for each of these areas. In verse three, when he talks about humility, he says, unless you are converted and become like children, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. In verse eight and nine, he says, if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. That's torture. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. That's the torture. So this is serious stuff. We are not being condemned by God for being imperfect Christians. That's not the point here. But we should worry if the faith we say we have is not in us. A faith that does nothing, that is not transforming at all. How can you believe Jesus endured unspeakable agony for your sins and not hate sin? I mean, that's the logical question. How can you experience God's saving mercy and not be merciful? Some genuine change in all these areas is a sign that the new birth has taken place, that something wonderful has been done for you, in you, by the Holy Spirit. You get baptized, but you can be baptized and not born again. You can come to church, but you can come to church and not be born anew. And you can tell whether or not you have experienced a spiritual rebirth. I mean, you really can. Some people have doubts they shouldn't have about it, but you can know if you're humble before the Lord, if you despise your sinfulness, if you love other people for Jesus' sake, you can tell if those things are in you, even in all of your imperfections. So let's be really clear about this whole thing. You can't enter heaven unless you're born again. What did Jesus told one of the big theologians of his day? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that man was a renowned theological expert and he didn't get it. He says, what? What do you mean? He didn't understand it. So don't be embarrassed if you don't understand it because sharp people didn't understand that. But you need to understand it. You need to learn what that means. Take it to heart. Well, I don't really care if I'm in the kingdom of God or not. You won't say that on the day 
the door is shut. You will care. So in this matter of forgiveness, something like the Father's mercy towards repentant sinners should be in you if you're a repentant sinner. Something of it should be there and you should grow in it as well. It's impossible to believe that you are a sinner worthy of hell and that God has forgiven you far more than 70 times 7 for your sins if you just flat out refuse to forgive other people. I mean, how can that be real to you if, if you refuse? That's what the parable is meant to bring to mind. A newborn person, a newborn person has this forgiveness in them experientially. They know all about it because they've experienced it from God. It's just there. I didn't get to see it, but somebody made a film this last year about the Staines family. Have you heard of Graham Staines? Do you remember that? 20 years ago, I think that's why they made the film, because 20 years ago in January 1999, Graham Staines with with his two sons, Philip was 10 years old and Timothy was like six, and they were burned to death by a Hindu mob in India. Um, He was a missionary doctor, worked 34 years in India in a leper colony, treating the lowest of the low, outcast people, lepers, for years and years, many decades, and he was much respected in that community for his wonderful work. But uh, he took his sons to a Christian retreat at a distant place, and when they were coming back, he was so worn out, they just parked their Jeep and slept in it before they were going to wake up and continue the journey. He was afraid he would crash or something like that. And while they were parked and sleeping in the Jeep, well, here's actually an account of what happened that day, a newspaper account. During the night, a mob described as anti-Christian attacked the vehicle with clubs and sticks, stuffed straw into the broken windows and underneath the vehicle, then set it on fire. Ignoring the screams of Graham Staines and his sons, Philip and Timothy, the mob refused to let them out. They just held them in the vehicle. They kept the doors closed. A report in the New York Times said the fire soon became an inferno. The mob stayed to watch their victims die. The men who killed him did this because they thought they were converting people from their tribal group to Christianity. And in 2003, there was a Hindu activist named Dara Singh who was convicted of orchestrating the attack. They found out who he was. He was the one that led that thing. So Graham Stain's wife, Gladys, and his daughter, they were told, you should probably leave India because people are going to be really upset after he got arrested and all of that kind of stuff. And they, they said, no. We're going to stay. According to the Times, quote, she will continue to tell people the good news, as she confidently called it, that the blood of Jesus, God's Son, can cleanse the world of sin. And this is what she said at the time about coping with this loss. She said, I talk to God, pour out my heart to Him, and He gives me strength and wisdom to go on. Whoever did this, we forgive them. I can forgive their deeds, but I cannot forgive their sins. Only Jesus can forgive their sins, and they will have to ask. Very strong lady, is she? I don't know. I don't know. I do know that she knows what she believes. And she had already taken, before this even happened, into her heart the incredible forgiveness that God had given her. So when the worst thing imaginable happened, her husband and her children were murdered by fire, I forgive them. She could say that. And we don't forgive people that, like, are mean to us, you know? Those were not 
religious words to her, to Gladys Steens. They're her life. It's how she conducts herself. And so without a husband's love and two sons she'll never hold on earth again, even today she's still serving the Lord there. This is 20 years later. In fact, in 2005 she was awarded the Padma Shri, which is a civilian award the government of India gives to uh, special people in India. And that brought in a lot of contributions, so she turned this little leper um, colony thing they had that they were working at and built a hospital there, a full hospital. So that's functioning now, and she runs it. In 2015, um, she was awarded the Mother Teresa Memorial Award for Social Justice. And she said just this year, and I think they were interviewing her because the film that came out, the Lord has been my rock and my fortress even before Graham died. God has been there with us. I never doubted he was with us. I'm thankful for that. I never doubted he's in control. So, you know, the Bible says we're aliens and strangers in this world. Pilgrims, that's where that word pilgrim, we're just traveling through. We never sing that song anymore. I'm just a traveling through. This world is not my home, right? But our hearts are not to be too tied down here. That's why we can be wronged and offended and mistreated and forgive. That's why we can lose so much here and forgive and love. We exist and we have been redeemed by this gracious love of God that cancels out all of our sins. We exist for a purpose. Not to have a pain-free life, but one that stands for something. Something deeper and higher and truer and more real. Because the world is in darkness and that darkness, faith and love shines brighter when it's manifested. That's gotta be what comes out of us. And that's what makes the world a better place. And that's what leads people to salvation in Christ. It's a guide. Our lives are a guide to people about what God wants. So faith and love mean hard choices and real situations. At the very least, it means denying yourself, which Jesus said to do. It means not having to win against other people. It means leaving judgment to God, which we're supposed to do. It means living as though some very great things are more important than I am. That's what it means. We should all be living like that. What an opportunity to live for Christ in this world when we're wronged. He was wronged and insulted, but gave himself right up into the ultimate end of suffering for the very people that were causing him so much grief, the ones who despised him. And we should be just like him. Let's pray. Father God, help us cast aside all pride, superiority, all the anger that we are so glad you do not express against us. Let it not be in us. And as Christ bore people's hatred, let us bear with other people's sins and failings and weaknesses. As redeemed men and women, show us the path of mercy to others. For your sake, for your sake and glory, we ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.